but it really wasn't until I started working on wood that things changed drastically for me. I was always working on canvas and I I was working on wood in, in grad school and doing stuff where I was sanding through and, and playing around with these ideas. But I got eight panels that were really incredible. They were so beautiful that I didn't want to paint them. And, you know, I just wanted them to be these wood panels. And I thought, okay, well, how can I paint on these, but also maintain the beauty that I see in this wood? Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 132nd episode, Michelle Kishta joins me to talk about her exhibition, Essential Impermanence, which opens this Saturday, January 17th at the Windsor Arts Center. She is a winner of our pro competition category for our 2013 competition. Her work was selected by Richard Holland of Bad at Sports. Um, Again, really excited to have her on finally. If you have never heard of Studio Break, we are a podcast and blog site. We feature a variety of different interviews with artists that come on and they share their work and they talk to me all about their studio practice and you can check them all out on Studio Break, so please go ahead and do that. Again, be sure to like our Facebook page. You can follow us on Tumblr, that's studio-break.tumblr. And, of course, send your tweets to at Studio Break. So that's all of our little announcements out of the way. Michelle Kishta coming up, so stay tuned. Welcome, Michelle Kishta. How are you today? I'm great. I'm um I'm busy, but I'm great. <laughs> yeah, again, we're catching you right at the beginning of this, uh, getting ready for your exhibition at the Windsor Art Center. Is that right? Yeah, uh, essential, essential impermanence. I think it's called. You were also um, one of our artists selected again by Richard Holland from Bad at Sports for our competition. So again, it's very awesome to have you on, and, and we're very excited about that. So thanks again. Yeah, thanks. I'm really excited, too. Maybe you've heard from some other episodes. You might have an idea how this works. But when I see somebody's work, I'm always just kind of like, what are they like when they were like, you know, four feet tall or, you know, (laughs) getting into trouble? So what kind of things were you interested in when you were younger? Where are you from? And and we can kind of go from there. I'm from central Pennsylvania originally. So I lived in the middle of nowhere. And that, that had like a huge impact on my creativity and the way that I think about my work because we were so far away from everybody else maybe school was an hour away hour and a half from the closest grocery store kind of thing so developed this enormous imagination to keep myself occupied and I would sort of um you know imagine things like the Tyrannosaurus Rex sort of coming up over the tree line or you know it my whole life was about like oh you know I was on another planet and I pushed the toads down the slide or whatever (laughs) It was like on the toad planet. But uh, so I think that that, you know, had a huge impact on my on my work. And actually, I, I think my very first memorable aesthetic moment happened when I was in elementary school. And it's kind of gruesome, actually. But, um, you know, we used to have chickens and we, we did a lot. My dad did a lot of hunting and different things like that. So we ate some kind of unusual things, but um, the chicken slaughter 
the sort of annual chicken slaughter was really had a huge impact on the way that I think about the world and the uh, what's real, what's not real. It was kind of strange to be chasing after chickens that didn't have their heads on, you know, mm-hmm. and like, is this real? Is this not real? But, and it's gruesome, like I said, but you know, the way that the, the blood hit the green grass and that red and the green, this had a huge impact on me, you know, the, the white flurry and, um, and then even sitting down with my father and, and sort of dressing out the chickens, you know, opening up the gizzard and it was purple and, and yellow. And then, you know, all these sort of, you know, interesting colors, you know, for me at that time, it was, had a huge impact. And then the insides had these little tight grass packets with, with stones and mm-hmm. it, it actually smelled like fresh cut grass. And, and here I was do and, you know, here I was doing this kind of disgusting thing, but actually also having this aesthetic appreciation, which at that time I didn't understand that that was what I was having, but having this appreciation for the colors and the smells and it didn't, but at the time also, you know, I didn't think of it as being super disgusting, but uh, you know, or that kind of thing, because it was just a normal thing that happened every year from the time that I could remember, you know, mm-hmm. um, but that, that had a huge impact on me. And so I, I think maybe that was the beginning of me thinking about the world um, through the eyes of an artist, you know? I'm I'm immediately trying to stack up like the differences between, you know, where you grew up and where I grew up uh, in the suburbs of Chicago, you know, nowhere near <laughs> anything like what you described, you know? Yeah. I don't know. It, I, I think it's funny. I just always, uh, maybe tools. I don't know. I have this appreciation for sort of like rusty things and metal things and um, which later, you know, I found through, you know, Wabi Sabi, these, these ideas that I've already like had an appreciation for these things. But in terms of making, you know, I could take the river rocks. I can remember taking river rocks and, and rubbing them together to make powder, to make makeup and right. <laughs> this kind of thing. So I, I think that those hands-on experiences and, um, and kind of magical experiences too, you know, I can, my dad used to tie strings to bumblebees and I walk around with this bumblebee on a string, like a balloon, you know? And I, I think these kinds of magical natural experiences and hands-on experiences makes it easier to, to think about the kinds of things you want to put in your work or the kinds of things you want to use in your work or um, nothing seems unusual you know it doesn't seem unusual for me to make makeup from rocks or it doesn't seem right. oh, I guess minerals are from rocks but I mean it doesn't it didn't seem unusual for me to do these different things and I'm not sure if that's quite what you're asking about but I think that having that experience it's so um it just it just broadened the way that I thought about everything and I'm not sure because I did live in the suburbs later when I was older and I remember being quite bored in the suburbs so I've heard that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, I don't know how my life would have been different or how my approach would have been different had I grown up somewhere else. I'm glad we moved away because I, I can't imagine my life 
uh, if I had stayed, I don't think I would have turned out in the same way that I that I am, you know. But I I um like you know going being excited about farm shows or you know showing a prize pig or something. I don't know. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I think I think my life would be a lot different had we not had we not moved away. So what wound up. Um... I guess bringing you towards studying art. Were you were you studying a lot of art in high school that led you to pursue it in college? How did how did that all come about? I, I can remember you know saying in elementary school that I wanted I, I had I was always divided to be an artist. I want to be a scientist. It was always artist or scientist, and and it was just something I gravitated toward. And in high school, I took as many art classes as I could I could fit into my schedule. I don't remember anymore what high school, you know, about high school, but like, you know, you had classes that you could take for like kind of half credits or something. I don't, I don't think they called them credits at the time, but, um, you know, I took everything I, I could in art. It was, I loved it. Clay, everything. And even in junior high school, I was in the, um, the honors art and there were only eight of us and it was a super exciting class. I had this great teacher and I think he was, really so supportive and, and, um, and taught us so much and taught us about being creative and thinking in different ways. And it just sort of set the stage for me to just keep going, you know, that's all I really wanted to do. And I can remember telling my father when I was a junior in high school that I wanted to go to school for art. And he said, absolutely not. There's no (laughs) way, you know, you're going to be an engineer I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm not going to college because there's no way I'm going to be an engineer. It was summer, so I was I locked myself away in my room, and I was doing – my maiden name is Tiger. And uh, so we had lots of tigers and stuff around our house. And I sat down one day, and I did a pen and ink tiger head all in stippling, you know. And I, I don't know, I was there from morning till like, late in the evening – and I took it downstairs and showed my parents and my dad took it and he looked at it and he was like silent for a really long time. And then he said, oh, honey, if you want to go to school for art, I'll pay for it. <laughs> I was like, all right. <laughs> so I think, you know, it was just something that where my father saw it wasn't just me trying to, I, I, I think, you know, my parents didn't go to college and they always wanted me to do more and I think they thought of art as more of a hobby you know I wonder too just how much of it is just based on this idea of what's measurable you know mm-hmm. but you know like like being an artist I mean to become better at being creative you create things and you know you fail a lot and I mean it's something that's not easy to measure you know failure and, and change and how you progress yeah right like things want to be like qualified like by how much money it earned or you know something like that yeah and I I I fell into that too, you know, when I was in high school, I was like, oh, I'm going to go to school to be an illustrator. I don't even think I knew what that meant, you know, <laughs> what does that mean to be an illustrator? But all I, could, but somebody somewhere told me, oh, well, if you're an illustrator, you can make money doing art. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, well, that's what I want to do, you know? Right. And, and it was the same thing. I, I originally went to school for um, graphic design. And I, my first degree is in graphic design because I was trying to do art and make money to sort of, I don't know, I, it might have even been sort of pacify my parents, you know. 
or a, the only way I knew how to do something. And I hated graphic design. When I got out, I was a graphic designer for a little while, and I was like, Ugh, I can't do this. You know, I just, I can't do this. I was going to say, so when was that? When did, so when did you wind up, um, I guess, starting then your, your studies? And of course, was, we could talk about how that transitioned into, you know, BFAs and MFAs and all that, but. Yeah, I, I um, started, maybe I started when I was 19 and I went into, you know, study graphic design. And while I was there, I was taking painting classes. And when I graduated, you know, it was a, a small class. There was a room that they had just for my and another person's paintings for mm-hmm. like the final thesis because I had done so many paintings. And so, you know, it it just sort of told me, but I was too young to really understand it or to like give into it or whatever, you know, like, oh, I'm really a painter. Mm-hmm. I'm a painter, you know? And so then I decided later to go back to school for my BFA and, and in painting. And that was a, a big decision. But again, I was trying to make money. Oh, I'll go for art education. I'll go for art therapy, you know? Mm-hmm. And then in the end, senior year, I said, oh, you know what? I'm just going to be a painter. And I told, and it was like such a big announcement. I told my professors, like, I'm just going to be a painter. And they're like, well, good for you. You know, <laughs> I was really excited about it. Cause for me, it was a huge, you know, a huge leap. Cause this whole time I was trying to think about ways to make money. And I'm like, Ugh, I'll just do what I want to do. And the money will follow, you know, that was a huge decision for me, but I didn't go for my BFA until I was 25. And so, and so where was that, that you want to doing that? At the University of the Arts in Philadelphia. So when you made that commitment, was that something that also kind of allowed you to kind of make the work that you wanted to make? What what kind of things were you interested in making at the time? I did a lot of really sort of abstract things. And when I was a junior, I had a friend who was in an accident and he became a quadriplegic. And that was sort of um, a real shift for, for me in my work. I, I didn't know what I was doing. Sophomore, I was sort of painting whatever and still life and... And I didn't, I was, I didn't have a direction. I was just painting. And then junior year when that happened, something clicked and I was like, oh, I can paint things that matter to me or a way that I can, I can sort of express this. And so I started doing wheels and then I started, and then I started making up this sort of abstract language for myself. And then when I went into senior year, I said, you know what? I can just, I can do whatever I want. I, I can do whatever I want. And that was huge. And I just, my first day of class, I, I went and got a canvas and it was like five feet tall and I stretched it across 13 feet long. And I just started making and I combined paint with charcoal and I, I had a big bucket of charcoal and water and I would, I would paint that on the canvas and the charcoal would get darker as I sort of layered it and I'd paint and then I'd use pastel and I did these giant paintings and they were, you know, giant abstractions, but really I think uh, the sort of basis for what I'm doing now, even though they look quite different, you know, but just that grid work and, and playing with materials and the idea that I was like, I can do whatever I want. And I don't know why, um, it wasn't obvious to me when, but you know, you're young. So you're just like, I, you know, I'm going to paint this still life or I'm going to do this thing. Cause you think painting is one thing. It was just this discovery for me. It's like, I can do whatever I want. And it really, it just changed everything for me. And I never left the studio. 
You know, even on holidays, if the, if the university was open, I was there. And sometimes I'd be at school for three days straight. You know, I never wanted to leave the studio. Well, and, and I'm curious what the process was like at the time. Were you, how were you thinking about this in terms of process at the time? It just really, at that time, there was no plan other than, you know, I'm going to use these materials and these colors. And mm-hmm. they were very kind of, I don't want to say monochromatic because it wouldn't be right, but it was just usually one color and then charcoal, you know. But I, I always knew what the colors were going to be. It was usually orange or red. And then and then I would start working into it and just really respond to what I saw. It literally was just making marks, responding to what I saw, backing away from it, adding. It was a completely sort of aesthetic experience. You know, it wasn't conceptual the way we think about the way, you know, that students are being taught conceptual thinking today, you know, mm-hmm. that didn't, that wasn't happening when I was an undergrad as much, you know, more people, more people were like about formalism, you know. I'm curious at the time then, were there, were there any artists that you were looking at? You know, you talked about kind of having a background and, and working in graphic design and that's not really what you're interested in. Was that also something that kind of became interesting looking at what different artists could do and, you know, what is acceptable to be a painter or not acceptable, but you know what I mean? Kind of allowing you yourself to go like, Oh, I could do this or something totally different. You know, I was looking at the abstract expressionists and Mm -hmm. I really loved Agnes Martin, even though that wasn't really all what my work looked like, but I would always sort of nod to her by sticking a grid over here or, you know, mm-hmm. making lines over there. And um, and Robert Motherwell, you know, it's sort of the classic, you know, Rothko, like sort of classic abstract expressionists. And I, I um, but I, I also like, you know, other, I have Cezanne. You know, I can't say sounds amazing. And I think when I was in college, there was, it was when I was in college, there was a huge retrospective at the, at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and it blew me away. You know, it was amazing. Those are the sorts of people, you know, that I was looking at and, and thinking about, I was really into that sort of internal, making the internal external and, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. You know, I also was really engaged, not with just like looking or just the aesthetics, but actual the actual making and the way that that felt. It was a really whole body experience, you know, because these pieces were enormous, six feet tall, 13 feet long. And when I made a circle, I had to use my whole arm from the shoulder, you know. And when I, everything was about the way that I was sort of um, physically approaching the piece, and I and I feel the abstract expressionists that, that that obviously their canvases were so large, you know, they were kind of having that same experience, and and it's so engaging and addictive almost, you know, that for me at the time it really was. So I, I'm curious then. So what did you wind up, I guess, committing on in terms of finishing out your BFA and? I don't know, what were you focused on when you when you wound up leaving there then, just kind of continuing this process of investigating? You know, when I left my BFA, I wasn't 100% sure um, about what it was that I was going to do. And it was jarring, right? Mm-hmm. You get out of BFA. So for four years, you're, you have studio time and, and you're making art and all you're doing is talking about art and all of these things. And then 
I graduated and was like, uh oh, well, what do I do now? You know, I, I don't have a studio, and and obviously I'm going to have to work. I worked while I while I was in school too, but you know, the idea that that sort of was over was really really jarring, and and so for a while it was a little difficult for me to get started back up, but I didn't stop. You know, I set up a studio in my parents' garage and <laughs> started painting, and I had actually sold some pieces, and it wasn't until I, maybe a year after I graduated, I moved into, into Center City, Philadelphia, and that's when everything really started taking off. I had a really nice community of artists there. One is Ryan Coburn. He's in New York City. Um, he's got a lot of things going on. And but at the time, you know, he was one of my really great, you know good pals, and we would have critiques every month uh, with a group of artists, and it was it was a really great experience. So it was for me living in the suburbs and trying to make art didn't it just didn't work for me I had to be in the city I had to build a community I had to be with other people who were making you know and and so I and I continued to make and I was really at that time after school I made a lot of I was really looking at Motherwell at that time and you know that was like you know, the late 90s. Well, and, and I'm curious, too, because, you know, you, you talked about, again, kind of like being in these different trajectories before, you know, what's it like to kind of be out of school then and, and kind of, I don't know, building your own community? I wasn't really sure what to do when I got out. and Nobody really talked about it at school, to tell you. There was really no guidance mm-hmm. and, you know, about how to go about these things. And um, so I just really was focusing on the making. And, and I made for... A few, maybe three years, and then I decided that I wanted to leave the country, and and that sort of stopped, you know, because I had I had studio space and I was and I was doing things. So, but when I I moved to Japan, I just needed something different, and so I I applied for the Jet program and I got in, and I moved to Japan. And even though I was doing, and then at that time I was making small little crystal drawings with these Posca pens from Japan. They're like paint markers. Mm-hmm. And I was doing that for the two years that I was there. I didn't do anything large scale. And I, I sort of just was in the experience of being in a different country and a different culture. You know, I, I didn't go, I didn't go back, I'm sorry. Dude. I didn't go back to school till 13 years after. Could you talk a little bit more about the, the JET program and, and I guess what that was about? I mean, is it like a residency or what was it? Oh, no, it's a teaching program. Okay, so uh, you, you were teaching yeah. and, and living in Japan. Yeah. And, okay. Yeah, it was a great experience. Yeah. So just a little bit of a different experience, I'm sure. Oh, it was shocking. I would imagine there's got to be so many different levels that that impacts, you know, everything about your, your experience. Can you can you name everything. three? <laughs> um. Well, the ocean impacted my experience. Um, it's sort of the basis of everything I do because I never lived near the ocean. And there, I was so close to the ocean, it actually terrified me. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, another thing is obviously Japanese prints goes without saying. And and the other thing is the sort of rift in my life. You know, it, it was so vastly different and so... 
it was a rift. I, I don't know what else to say about it. It it created such a a shift in the way that I viewed the world that I it changed me forever. I I was there when the when the World Trade Center was attacked. So it was really weird viewing the United States from that perspective and being so far away, you know? And yeah, it, it changed everything for me. You would mention, you know, just kind of Japanese prints and I don't know, are you going, do you want to getting to go to museums that are just kind of like chock full of that? I kind of think of like, I don't know, like what I'm trying to think of in terms of like what you see in, I don't know, St. Louis when you go to the museum versus, you know, where your experience is like, I mean, is it like something where you're kind of able to like kind of fall in love with this history then too? Absolutely. I, I fall in love with everything, but you know, it's, there's a big difference between the way that the Japanese people live day to day and then the history, you know, if, if you go to Japan, like if you have this expectation of, uh, what Japan is, that's not what it is, but that's what it is in the museums. So, you know what I mean? Like every, it's sort of like that cultural thing that we're fed through television or books that's in the museums there. And Mm -hmm. that's the thing that, you know, when I, when I was going to Japan, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to see this and I'm going to experience this. And it's like, no, (laughs) you're not, you're going to have these (laughs) other experiences, but going to the museums and, you know, and I spent a lot of time in the museums there and Weno has some incredible history museums and just, um, I can't, I was to so many castles and, and I know so much about Japanese history now because my husband, that's like the only thing on his mind ever. So that's <laughs> all he wants to talk about. You get him talking about it. And you're like, oh my God, what have I done? You know, <laughs> he never stops. Well, and what was the, what was the landscape there like? Well, where I lived, I lived in a very small fishing village. And so it was kind of incredible. And you had the ocean, you know, I had the ocean on one side of me and I had these small kind of rolling hills. I don't want to call them hills. They were little mountains. And I grew up in an area known for flower picking. And so there would just be fields and fields of poppies and flowers. It was just incredible so you had like the ocean you could you could stand in one spot and look down at the ocean and the waves crashing and then look up at the mountain while you're standing in the middle of a flower field you know it was breathtaking really and just being around I don't know the the boats and all of that it was a really different experience for me I it was not anything I was accustomed to having growing up in the mountains, you know? Mm-hmm. And and so at, at the time you were, you said you were working with like um, paint markers and were you, yeah. were you, were you able to kind of like work from site or, I mean, was that something that I'm curious how it impacted your studio work or if, if, you know, even if it was at the time or not, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't really, it didn't impact what I was doing until later. I was just trying to stay active while I was there mm-hmm. and I had a very busy life. I taught like, this is insane. Actually. I taught 25 classes a week. Jeez. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so, and, and that included, you know, it was the elementary school, the junior high school. And I also taught evening classes for adults. And so, and I taught like literally every class within, you know, the junior high school and 
it was crazy. So my time, I can't even tell you, I had no time really. And it was for the better because it was good for me to stay occupied. You know, I was there mm-hmm. by myself. So sure. And then, you know, I traveled everywhere too. So if I, so if I wasn't teaching and I had time off, it's like, well, where are we going? You know, let's go here. So <laughs> it was just me drawing and I wasn't drawing from life. I was just doing sort of abstractions and layering and, and that kind of thing. Well, and, and, and so what, what led you away from Japan then? Oh, you know, I got married. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and to be truthful, I didn't want to be a Japanese wife. And the only way that the only way that I felt that I could be happy and be with the person I wanted to be with was to come back to the United States. So, um, so that's what we did. Interesting. So, so what happened next? You, you moved to where, what are you, what are you doing? I came back and I started working for Freeman's auction house. Um, and I became their Japanese print specialist and, um, I would identify prints and, um, authenticate prints and that kind of thing. I did that for a few years and then we moved away to Palisades park right outside of New York. It was like, it's like 10 minutes in theory from New York city. There's no traffic. And, um, and it was really moving away from Philadelphia that made me want to go back to grad school. And so I put all my effort in the, I don't, I don't remember if we lived there for two years or three years, but all my effort went into building a portfolio to get into grad school because it was just, I thought I can't stay in Palisades park and I can't keep working in Japanese arts and antiquities. I can't keep doing this. I really need to make, and I need to make on a larger scale and it has to have a, a larger, um, place in my life. I need to jumpstart my practice. I didn't have that term before I went into grad school, by the way. Practice <laughs> was something I learned in grad school, you know. Uh, I don't but, think I had it until I started doing this podcast, so. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like this funny thing, but I mean, it, but it's important to think of it as a practice, I think, because I, that's exactly what I was craving. I was craving the sort of everyday working or the everyday thinking about art. You know, thinking about painting, thinking about the world in that way, you know? Well, and it's just something that takes up so much time. I mean, I mean, it's, um, you know, again, I mean, it's not not something that's always easily measured. But I mean, again, it's just something that takes lots and lots of time to to do and, and to do consistently. Absolutely. And when I thought about going back to grad school, I, you know, I was an adult, like not just an adult, but like an adult you know, and, sure. I, and so I had a whole lifestyle, you know, I had a way of living that I, I thought it might be difficult to, you know, not have money, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so when I was looking for schools, I was looking for low residency programs. I wanted something where I could maintain a job and also, you know, jumpstart my practice. And so that ended up leading me back to the University of the Arts and back to Philadelphia. Is that something that it also like really allowed you to focus on what you wanted to do then? I mean, I, and maybe that's an obvious question, but like, you know, if you're if you're 22 years old, uh, starting your MFA, and you've never been anywhere, you know, yeah. which is which is which happens. You know, I've 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 seen it. You know, people are like, I don't know what I'm doing after this, and 
Right. You know, you're like, gosh, really? Like nobody's talked to you about this. So, I mean, is that something that also like really allows you to then really, you know, focus on like, these are my goals. I want to, I want to make this kind of work. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, I'll tell you a little secret. My secret is that right out of undergrad, I did apply to some art schools, to a grad mm-hmm. school, and I did not get in. And um, I was so upset. So, but, you know, everybody's like, yeah, you know, you're not going to get in anyway because you haven't had any experience in the world. And they want people who've been out for a while. And I don't think that's the case today, but. Um, maybe it was back then, but actually I think that was really important because had I gone right into grad school, I don't know that I would have been, I don't know what I would have been making. I think all the experiences that I had and all the things that I did in my life were really important for me to get to the place that I am now with my work and going back to grad school at I don't know. I don't even remember how old I was. My late thirties. Mm-hmm. It was really that was the best time for me to go back because I knew exactly what I wanted and I knew why I was doing what I was doing and I can make really, I can make really important decisions, you know. And I recommend anybody who's going into grad school to live life a little while before you go back. It's not about that degree. You know, and if you're going back to school to get a degree, that's kind of the wrong thing to do. You know, it's really about your own work. And I'm glad that I was out long enough that I could see that and that I had that kind of distance from it. And then I could see that I was doing this for my work, you know. Well, and it, it also seems like with your background, too, that I don't know that you're more open than to kind of just accepting change when I don't know, when something doesn't happen immediately in the studio, you know? Yeah. Cause it's, cause so much of what artists do is to have to kind of fail and go, Oh gosh, like I gotta, how do I salvage this? You know, uh, the best, the best times in the studio, you know, are the failures. I've made some of the best work of my life because I screwed a painting up or, you know, if you, you screw a painting up, Oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing. You know, look at this thing I did right here. I can't salvage this painting, but that thing right there, that's going into the next one. I'm starting with that next one, you know? Right. And I think that's the magic. That's the magic. It's about making, you know, and grad school, it was the best worst time I've ever had, <laughs> you know, honestly. And so to kind of put us in that place. So what, what kind of paintings were you making at the time? Before, right before I went into grad school for my portfolio, I was focusing on, you know, kimono patterns and furisone and uchikake. And at the time, it's funny because I look back on it now because I have distance, um, I think it was some kind of commentary or I think it was some kind of way for me to think about my life and being a married person versus being a single person. And, you know, cause it's, it's difficult being married to um, somebody from another culture. You know, the first few years of my life was just crazy because we had different ways of thinking about the world and to have to figure all that out. It was really hard. And, but I think that work came from that. I would, um, take the patterns and I would manipulate them in the computer and then I would do a printout and it was very methodical actually and it bored me to tears to tell you the truth 
and I would grid it off, and then I'd grid off a canvas of the same proportions, and then I'd transfer it over, and then I would literally take this printout and reproduce it on a canvas. And, and that's what I was doing. And, and it was just a different process, a completely different process, because before I was doing, you know, everything was so intuitive. And then here's this thing that I was doing that was so planned. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't have imagined that that's what my work would be. And so going into grad school, I thought I was making some of the same. And it was really, uh, I realized really quickly that that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because our first assignment was to do seven paintings in seven days. And, well, it took me forever to do one painting. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to have to do something different because I can't, I can't continue like this. And that's part of grad school, right, is breaking you. And so even though everything had sort of – it's still all of the paintings that I, that I was doing in the first semester uh, in grad school were based on Japanese kimonos. Um, that it's, It changed. It started changing after that because it has to. Sure, sure. Well, and, and I'm curious that too, like in terms of like color, is that something that has, I don't know, how, how does that kind of come about in, in your work? And again, I, it's hard to know exactly like how much these pieces that we're kind of talking about, you know, relate to in terms of your current work. But I mean, it seems like color is something that's also very important in terms of exploring for you. Color is really important to me. And I love color. And I would make decisions, and I don't know what to say to you. I have an, int- uh, I'm going to say, and it's probably not, you know, the best answer in the world, um, but I have a, a sort of intuitive color sense. And I can start a painting and I'll say, okay, I'm using this, 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 and this. And I'll start out with those colors knowing I'm going to use those colors. And then when I sit back, I'll say, oh, I need a hot pink something right there. And then I'll, you know, mix up a hot pink and put that there. And and I remember in grad school, I, I kind of got a lot of heat over my colors. And um, I had, would have somebody come in for a crit. I can remember one professor, he's like, oh, your colors are beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, wait, they are too beautiful. And then <laughs> it's like, okay. And I said, all right, well, here's the thing. I'm not really sure how to make something that's not and that's, a, I don't know if it's a problem, but I have a hard time making something that's not harmonious. <laughs> and, um, and, and I don't know, the colors are usually harmonious and the composition, and it's just something, and I think that's the graphic designer in me, too, that, you know, wants those things to all add up to something, you know? But anyway, so I said, okay, well, the only way I'm going to be able to make a painting with colors that aren't harmonious is if I don't have any decision like, if I can't make a decision about the colors. So I went to a Home Depot, and I grabbed a whole bunch of those paint chips, and I cut them all up, and I threw them in a paper bag. And I would shake it up and say, okay, I'm going to use these three colors. I pulled three colors out of the bag, and black and white. And it was funny because some of the colors wouldn't be colors, obviously, combinations that I would choose. But hilariously, they always ended up, you know, just sort of, <laughs> looking like they belong together because I could, you know, the black and the white sort of, I can play with that, you know? Well, I was going to say, it's interesting too, because though, then it kind of really forces you to also learn about how to deal with these different color issues, you know, cause you're using, you know, maybe colors that you never would have picked yourself. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and, it, and that was exciting because I think that also expanded the way that I thought about color because I realized, well, you know, I can actually make these things work even though they're not technically supposed to, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And and that was that was a challenge and, and it was exciting. And, and so now I, I definitely think when I think about colors that I might choose things that are a little bit more unusual or... Um, I don't know though, you know, looking at my work, who knows, <laughs> you know, but it, it was a, it was an important, it was important uh, at that time. And being an MFA, they're always making you do things that make you uncomfortable. Right. So that was an important discomfort. <laughs> There's gotta be like a MFA kind of stories blog or something. I don't know. It's such a weird time, you know, <sighs> it's awful. I mean, <laughs> it really is. Well, it can be. And, and, but I, you know, I can, I, I I cried a lot. I was frustrated. Um, it was torturous. That's why I say it's the best worst time I ever had. And you know, but it's necessary. If you you know, what's the point really in going back to school to just keep making the same things that you're making, right? Mm-hmm. And what I really loved about grad school, and I'll tell you, is it taught me a few things. The one thing it taught me was I need to work on many things at one time. And that I need to just do, just play, just, you know, I made so many terrible things (laughs) in grad school, like really awful, awful stuff. And, um, but it was great because I did it, you know, and I, you know, oh, I'm going to put these stickers on my, on this, or I'm going to sew into this, or I'm going to throw my paint onto this. And I, and I did all of these different things. I even like did stuff where I went through a book and I cut out every third word and then made poems out of those words. And then, you know, it, it was ridiculous. And, but I did it and I did all of these different things. And, and it was a way for me to discover who I was. You know, I would never have done that if it, if I if I wasn't in a grad program. It was awesome. Um, so is this is this like a process that kind of continued then throughout like your your MFA? So where did it wind up taking you in terms of like um, graduating with an exhibition? Because it sounds like again you had tons and tons of time to experiment and do all the kind of things that you can just say, yeah, I, I tried that, and you know, I'm doing this. You know, what was great about being in a low residency was that I had to find a way to make my life and my art happen at the same time. And so transitioning out of an MFA and into a regular studio practice was, was a really easy transition because I just continued in the same way that I was working. Mm-hmm. And, and I just drove at it. I, I got a studio really soon after that and I played around. I made a lot of mistakes, you know, and, and it was really the best thing for me. And I got a bunch of different shows. And I think the best thing for me was working within Liquid, which is, you know, here in Philadelphia. It's an artist. Um, all these artists are on the Internet. And so curators were looking at my art and picking my art from there. And um, that worked out really well. And I, I got a bunch of shows, bang, 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 right away. And um, But it really wasn't until I started working on wood that things changed drastically for me. I was always working on canvas and I I was working on wood in in grad school and doing stuff where I was sanding through and, and playing around with these ideas. But I got eight panels 
that were really incredible. They were so beautiful that I didn't want to paint them. And, you know, I just wanted them to be these wood panels. And I thought, okay, well, how can I paint on these, but also maintain the beauty that I see in this wood? And that's what sort of jump-started the whole thing. And I was, it was sort of a pressure, too, because I were really, I mean, I worked my best, actually, under pressure, which is awful. But, um, <laughs> you know, and I had a solo show, and it was my first solo show. And um, I had three months to prepare the show. <laughs> That's insane. That's insane, right? But then working in this new way was double insane. So, But it was great because it pushed me into where I am now, which is looking at the wood and thinking about the wood. And so, for example, you know, I, my work is, a lot of my work is about water. And the way that I use the wood is accentuating the wood grain or pulling out parts of the wood grain that shows the water. Mm-hmm. I, I always really like how um, I like the connections that are made using the wood panel too. So, you know, wood grain is a measure of the amount of water that's been taken in in a given year. And it's also, and it also looks yeah. like water. I, I love these kinds of connections and that was really exciting for me. Like when you're working through these, how, uh, Obviously, like I, it sounds like there's maybe some planning involved, but how how does that process evolve now? Then, in terms of like, do you draw these shapes out? Or are you? It, it's dictated by the wood panel. So I I get the panel. I look at the panel. If it has a particularly beautiful area of wood grain, I decide. Well, do I want to? Do I want that part of the wood grain to show as wood grain, or do I want to sort of highlight it by painting into it? Mm-hmm. And that's how it, that's the back and forth. So you'll see in some of my work where there are no um, rounded edges, there's no wood grain that I'm putting in. I'm doing all these linear kinds of things around the wood grain so that the wood grain can show through. So it's a push and pull. I'm distracted looking, of course, uh, through your website. So <laughs> I hope people okay. I hope people spend the 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 time during the interview doing the same thing. Again, yeah, it's really interesting to think about just the way that you balance all these different colors. I guess maybe this isn't really an exciting question, other than just for for my own amusement. But do you wind up do you paint do you tape a lot of things off? Yeah. Are they like hand painted then? All of the kind of like small, you know, shapes that might kind of like be related to like one of the the wave shapes in the wood or Yeah, so anything that's wood grain is all hand painted, um, really carefully, meticulously painted, and all of the line work is done with tape. Tape can be a bear to work with and there's a lot of bleeding. If you don't prep your panel just right or if you use the wrong kind of tape or, you know, you get all this bleeding and then for me, it's about, okay, well, what can I do with this now? Because sometimes I get bleeding and I have to rethink about, I have to rethink the line or I have to think about how I'm going to repair the line. Because once you paint on the wood, it's, you know, it's gone. So you have to plan a little bit. Um, but I do, I, I do work intuitively too, you know, because when I lay out strips of tape, I sometimes don't have a plan for how that's happening. I do it. I paint into it, I pull the tape off, and then I look at what I have, you know? And, and you had also said that you're you're working on a number of these at the same time, is that correct? Yes. Okay, so that might be something where you're, you know, kind of working through one, and you're kind of like, okay, I don't know what to do, I'm going to this one, and exactly. kind of bouncing back and forth, so that's kind of interesting. 
Yeah, over the summer I had like 20 pieces going wow. at the same time. It was ridiculous. And, but they weren't all those pieces that are on the internet. You know, I made a lot of mistakes and uh, I really wanted to experiment in addition to making the pieces that I was making that I was excited and happy making, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, but I also wanted to try different things. So uh, yeah, it was like 20 pieces and that was just too much, but I, on an average, I'll work on maybe three or four Okay. at the same time. And it's it's interesting too because then it seems like from you know all the different ways that you process in terms of your background, then that you've kind of find you know found like a new balance that incorporates. It sounds like a lot of them, you know. Like, is it, is it, is that something that kind of fluctuates between pieces then, where some will be, I guess I don't know. You'll have more of something planned out before you go into it, or absolutely some of them. Some of them are really planned and. Um, and that's because I can, if I look at the panel, I can see what I think it is right away. Ah, oh, I know what this is, you know, and I can, and then it's just about doing it. And you want to know, I recently, uh, as recently as October began using the computer to, to plan my pieces. So I'll start and that's a new thing. And, um, and it's kind of an exciting thing. And, you know, so like I'll start a piece I'll start three pieces or four pieces. I have an idea about what I want them to be. I'll start them. Then I'll take photographs of them and then I'll bring them home, put them into Photoshop and then I'll make some lines or I'll do some things. And then that way I can play with the color. You know, it, it, I can play. It's like rather than going into the studio, taping off and then making something purple and then backing away like, look, I want that to be purple and I take it off and I sure. take something else. I, I can really do a lot of the planning in at home and, and thinking through it and thinking through it in a completely different way than I would in the studio. And I don't do all of the pieces like that, but I, you know, it depends on the situation, but and then I'll print it out. I'll take it into the studio and, and then I'll execute. And then once I do it, I'll step back and see if I need to make changes or if that really was working. I don't always follow it. Exactly. But it's a really interesting way for me to work right now. and a little exciting, too. Well, and it's a nice way to kind of just get a preview of something, you know, like especially if it's some rather big decision or, you know, yeah. what I mean? like Absolutely. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint this intense shape right here. You know, at least you kind of have an idea maybe if it'll work. Yeah. Oh, that's what that's what. That's why I did it in the first place. Right. I had a piece and I was like, oh, I want to do this and this. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take a picture. I'm going to I'm going to play with it and see if that's really going to work for me. Because what, like I said, once the wood is gone, it's gone. You know, and um, I don't want to ruin. The surface is so important that I just don't want to ruin. I don't want to ruin that. You know, mm-hmm. it takes a little bit away from the playing and making mistakes and that kind of thing. But I do other things in my studio that allow me to make mistakes and. And uh, I do a lot of playing so that I don't have to worry so much about that within the process of those pieces, you know. Well, and I think one thing that is easily maybe, you know, lost in the digital world of, of seeing work, but also the scale of these are kind of like mid to they're, – they're kind of like a human size, right? I mean, almost four feet high, most of them, right? Yeah, so that's something that's also kind of interesting to think about, too, in terms of just the way that, I don't know, they might be received, um, especially like spatially, because there's there's really interesting areas that seem to kind of recede in the in some of the paintings. And then, 
you know, some of the colors that will really flatten out or maybe there'll be kind of like a stripe that kind of nullifies the whole area. So that kind of push and pull effect is, I don't know, something interesting, but I think especially on scale, it would be really interesting. I, I work 40 by 46 typically. It's kind of unusual, um, you know, shape, but it's almost it's like almost a square, but kind of a rectangle. And when it's vertical, it's really long. And when it's horizontal, it's kind of squat and square. You know, usually that's what I do. And, um, and, and that makes for an interesting way of approaching it too, because sometimes, you know, cause I think a lot in landscape terms, you know, I think a lot about sky and, and, you know, ground. And so when I flip it up on its side, it, if the panel's made with the wood grain going in that direction, and I flip it up on its side, that sky gets enormous, you know? And But it's the same proportion, really, you know? And so, but it's just amazing to me how that proportion, when you flip it, is so vastly different when I, when I approach it, you know? You have a show coming up at the Windsor Art Center. Yeah. Um, how, many, how many pieces do you have in this exhibition? And, and could you just give us some more details? I have eight paintings in the show, and I have an installation. The eight pieces are all on my website right now, actually. And the installation I'm making is a wood river, and I have 8,000 paint stir sticks in uh, various, you know, some of them are dipped into paint, some of them are dipped and wrapped in Japanese papers, some of them are just wrapped in Japanese papers. Um, and they're going to go through the middle of the space like a river because that's important to me too, that whole idea of water and wood and, and then playing with that idea. And that space is really cavernous and the ceilings are super high. And so when thinking about what I wanted to do, you know, I think a lot of people go, oh, I'm going to use these ceilings. They're so high and I'm going to do that. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to bring everybody's eyes to the floor and I'm going to do this on the floor, you know? And so that's where it came from. You know, I was like, I'm going to make a river and I'm going to put it on the floor. Well, and, and it's something, again, maybe I, I wish uh, we had uh maybe more time and something maybe we could come back to if you ever come back um, is to talk about the installations. But, you know, I would imagine that's also something that's like a nice component to be balancing out the painting aspect because you might have then this, you know, like, what am I going to do in this space? I've got this other, you know, thing to work through, right? I, you know, I, I frequently wish that I had, um, that I belonged to a co-op or something where, I had the ability to do just installation with them, you know, I mm-hmm. think, um, it always, it always informs my painting, my painting informs, it's, it's such a great, it's such a great way for me to think about my own, like to think about my paintings is to make it not three-dimensional because <laughs> everything always comes off the wall. You know, I'm not a three-dimensional person by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so even the installations I sort of consider to be paintings, you know, but it's incredible the way that the back and forth and how they inform the work. I just don't get as much time to, you know, as much opportunity to do them. They take a lot of time and a lot of money. And, um, and so that's, I don't have that many opportunities to do that. Sure. Sure. Well, and again, like, like you're saying, I mean, I think it's just an interesting, got just an interesting aspect of the studio practice then the practice, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, to have, to have all these things kind of going, um, so again, it's very exciting uh, to have you on to talk about it. Again, I thank you so much for yeah. taking the time. Um, again, really enjoy your work. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Thanks.
thanks once again to Michelle for joining us. And please go check out her website, michellekishta.com. And once again, please check out Essential Impermanence. Again, this exhibition opens at the Windsor Art Center in Connecticut this Saturday, January 17th. And the show is with another artist, Deborah Losada. So please go ahead and check out that exhibition. And if you're listening to Studio Break for the very first time, we hope that you check out some of the other episodes. Again, we have a large archive. You can go to studiobreak.com and just scroll down on the left sidebar, go month by month. Or you can go to the iTunes store, subscribe to the podcast, and just go through a long list of all the podcasts that we've had. Once again, each of the entries that we have on Studio Break have images of the artist's work, links to their website, so you can find out more about them there. So please go ahead and do that. Of course, if you'd like to follow us in some of our social media functions, and again, we love hearing from artists and listeners, please check us out. Again, you can follow our Facebook page and like it. Again, we provide updates and announce guests and opportunities, things like that. So please like our Facebook page. You can follow us on Tumblr. That's studio-break.tumblr. And also, you can tweet us at Studio Break. Again, we love hearing from artists on Twitter and seeing new work and all sorts of stuff. So please tweet us there. We do want to thank Skylar Mail for providing the music to Studio Break. Again, you can check out his website at skylarmail.com. If you would like to see a little bit of my work, I invite you to check out davidlinaway.com and see some of the recent paintings that are up there. So please go ahead and do that as well. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you real soon.